Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. In 1811, the dream of a unified Indian Republic died at Tippecanoe. From a young age, the Shawnee warrior Tecumseh fought for a destiny disrupted, a dream lost, a free Indian land. Utilizing political skill, warrior prowess, and persuasive action, Tecumseh came closer than any other leader to creating a free and independent Indian nation in the American West. On this episode, we discuss Tecumseh's rebellion and the Battle of Tippecanoe. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 6 of the series, we're discussing American Rebellions, the winners and losers who help shape the future of the American Republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared, and you can follow me on Twitter at Brady Kreitzer by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit our Facebook page. The conversation's always growing. Jump on in. I always respond. I promise you that. Facebook.com slash Brady J. Kreitzer. For news, updates, and appearances, you can visit my website, bradykreitzer.com. And of course, your home for everything wartime on the web, including any financial contributions you may be willing to make to wartime to keep it going, uh, cover some of our costs. Again, we are always commercial-free, wartimepodcast.com. On this episode, we're going to talk about what I think is one of the most successful rebellions in American history. And it's successful not because in the end its goal was achieved, but because it was long, it was drawn out, it had the support to really make their goal attainable at the end. It won't sound like it, at least not by 21st century standards. But uh, Tecumseh's War uh, will be one that, for me, is always that moment when it almost happened. They were that close. So we're going to talk about Tecumseh and what he does and a little bit about his brother as well on today's episode of Wartime. And this is a very big story that really covers probably 50 years almost uh, in its totality. And again, it's one of the reasons why I say it's it's so close uh, to being to being successful. Uh, and it would have dramatically changed the fortunes and future of the United States. There is absolutely no way that this country would look the way it does today if Tecumseh had his way. This is a story that involves politics. This is a story that involves war. This is a story that involves, and I know you're sick of hearing it, an eclipse of all things. Um, and there were no funny glasses this time. Um, So we're going to deal with all of that today, and we're going to try to put things in perspective as we make the turn into the 19th century. So a little bit about Tecumseh to set the stage for us as we begin. 
We always like to build the context. This is one that is a pretty deep dive. But I think you have to understand that full picture to appreciate what Tecumseh does and why there's still statues of him in America today. Uh, And that's the last I'll bring up statues again, I promise. So here's the deal. Tecumseh's born in 1768 in a stretch of land basically ranging from the Allegheny Mountains that bisect Pennsylvania today westward to what is roughly the state of Indiana. It's this big, massive swath of territory, which, by the way, uh, we are recording at live right now, uh, known as the Ohio Country. This is where I call home. Uh, This is where probably many of you call home. But at the time, in the 18th century, the Ohio Country, named after the Ohio River, uh, is this big, sort of massive, autonomous uh, middle ground between a lot of different alternative worldviews. The British and the French in the 1750s and 60s, but that Seven Years' War ended the French influence. And now the British and what is across the Mississippi, the Spanish. And when you look at who are in the middle, it's this gigantic, enormous collection of Indian nations uh, of all different tribal uh, communities trying to find a place in the changing new world. And in 1768, or right around then, that's when we see Tecumseh born. Now, Tecumseh as a baby is not going to do much that's impressive. But what we want to focus on is the major political shift that happens as he grows up. Because 1768 is also a watershed moment in the diplomatic history of North America. Because 1768 is the passage of what we know as the First Treaty of Fort Standwix. If you live in upstate New York, that may sound familiar. But this isn't a New York story. The Treaty of Fort Standwix will alter the fortunes of hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of people, and millions more moving west in the future. So, what is that treaty? The Treaty of Fort Stanwix was signed between the British Empire and the vast and powerful Iroquois Confederacy, the Haudenosaunee, the people of the Longhouse. If you're not familiar with the Iroquois, I suggest going all the way back to Season 1. We did a whole episode on them because they were so influential. But the Treaty of Fort Stanwix basically gave away an almost incalculable tract of land really everything south of the Ohio River, modern West Virginia, parts of modern Ohio, uh, and and really all of Kentucky, to the British Empire. Okay, big deal. Why is that important? Well, even though the Iroquois technically controlled that land uh, by treaty, they didn't live on that land. That land belonged to the people of Tecumseh, the Shawnee. And in 1768, the British happily signed that document, Settlers flooded south of the Ohio River, and for the Shawnee people who had been living there for the last several years, it was nothing short of an unlawful invasion. So in 1768, 69, and beyond, you begin to see the Shawnee take a very militant stance, uh, not only against the British and the settlers who come there, including, by the way, uh, George Washington, amongst others, uh, but against the Iroquois Uh, who were technically uh, their imperial overlords as well. This is when the Shawnee Rebellion will begin, and that's the world that Tecumseh is born into. 
a world where he sees his people treated unjustly, a, wor- a world where he hears stories from his tribal elders about what the Shawnee used to be, uh, but what he sees is a, a gradual slipping away or taking away uh, of his birthright. That has a powerful effect in terms of being a trauma on a young man, or young woman for that matter. Uh, and Tecumseh will come of age in a generation uh, of warriors that have a serious chip on their shoulder, and one that, quite frankly, is probably deserved. Again, not just against the British uh, and the American colonists, but against the Iroquois as well. Those hostilities will lead to a watershed moment on the frontier in 1774, we know as Lord Dunmore's War. This is effectively the colony of Virginia's effort to subdue these uh, angry and warlike Shawnee uh, uh, south of the Ohio River, or in what was to them Western Virginia. And we know looking at this that Tecumseh's father will be killed in that war at a battle in what is today Point Pleasant, West Virginia, known as the Battle of Point Pleasant. Uh, he's one of the famous casualties of that battle, not because of who he was, uh, but because of who his son would be uh, in the wake of, of that event. Uh, so when you see uh, Tecumseh coming of age, I keep coming back to this, he is uh, bitter uh and I think that bitterness is justified, but he has a bold ambition not to take land from the Americans uh, and the British colonists who are there, but to reclaim land he believes was rightfully his that was lost. We'll see Tecumseh when he's uh, in his 20s, engaging in what was America's first war after the Revolution, a long, drawn-out Indian conflict that some are calling the Northwest Indian War, uh, as important of a war that we've ever had in this country if you're the type of person who understands the frontier uh, and who understands how it shaped American life in terms of expansion and the native population in the region. And again, he learns from his tribal elders who are fighting uh, the ways of war. He learns how to fight. Uh, He learns when to fight. He learns when not to fight. He learns when diplomacy is in order, uh, and he also learns when you have no other choice but to take up arms. So, you have a little bit of information about the history of Tecumseh, because that was all really important, and it's really hard to talk about who he is later without understanding that. But, But the awesomeness of this man, the power and the prestige uh, of this man, is not found in his history, per se, but also a lot to do with his character. And we have these great sort of period descriptions around the year 1800 and beyond of who Tecumseh was uh, physically and what some of his great leadership traits were. Because when you study great leaders in the history of North America, I firmly believe that Tecumseh has to be one of them. So what were they? Well, he was tall. He was athletic. Uh, He was a gifted speaker, and you can tell, especially when we see him on the battlefield, uh, how he thought on his feet. He was the perfect Shawnee leader. That is to say, uh, he led by example, not just leading from the front, 
but he was on the battlefield going hand-to-hand with his enemies. It was highly unusual in the European world, we can say that, to see a commanding officer, a high-ranking officer, not just in the front, but you know, loading up uh, muskets and firing cannons. That didn't happen a lot. Um, but for Tecumseh, he is up to his elbows in blood, so to speak, for most of his career. So what brings us to his rise to power? What brings us to his claim to fame? It's going to be, quite frankly, the birth of the United States of America. Now, unless you've been living under a rock for the last, say, 250 years, uh, America's kind of a divided place. We fight about a lot of things. We all have our own opinions. Some of us share them more than others. Uh, Of course, that's a joke about me. Um, But that's part of living in a democracy. You have a say in the outcome, so you are entitled to an opinion. That's something that doesn't happen in other countries. If you speak out against the government in some places, you're dead. In America, not only are we willing to speak out, we have the right to speak out. And man, do we do it. And that's the way America's really been since the beginning. It's a big table for the first time in the world. You have this forum uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries to have your opinion heard. And a lot of people want to have their opinions heard. You have federalists in D.C. who believe in a strong, centralized government. Um, Think of them sort of proponents of what we call today as big government. George Washington, John Adams, Alexander Hamilton. On the other side, you have the Democratic Republicans, these people that believe in individuals and states retaining most of the power, and the federal government being very small. These are people, for example, uh, like Thomas Jefferson, the most famous. And they fought a lot, and they fought about a lot of different things. But the one thing they didn't fight on uh, was the one thing that will unify Americans north and south for the next 60 years until Civil War was that it was America's destiny, destiny, to move west. You couldn't move east. If you're in New York City, if you're in Charleston, if you're in Boston, and you go east, you're going to be wet really soon. You're on the coast. So you have to move west. And that westward movement was something that all political parties really came to agreement on. If you are a person who is a Shawnee, If you are a person who is a Delaware, a Lenape, uh, if you are a person who is a Miami or an Ottawa uh, or a Potawatomi, that westward movement of the new United States is coming right for you. You are the only thing standing between an America that stretches all the way to the Pacific and the obliteration of your people. So... Native communities at this time, especially the further west you go, uh, will have a reputation for being belligerent and warlike. But, I will say again, can you blame them? I'm not sure you can't. Uh, So, that's Tecumseh's world. And all of that westward expansion is what is the backdrop of this story. Because it's very clear, by the time you get to 1806 and beyond then America's not stopping. It's going to grow. It's going to continue to push its frontier further westward until it hits the Pacific Ocean. That's the dream. And if you're Tecumseh, you see that you're really out of options. 
you'll try to find peace where you can. But there isn't much uh, you can do, or there's only so much you can do on a peaceful footing if you're not willing to use force. So that takes us to America's newest territory, soon to be America's newest state, Indiana. Indiana is not just the home of the 500. Indiana is not just the home of current Vice President Mike Pence. Uh, Indiana is, in the 18th, in the 19th century, the first decade or so of it, um, a busy place. You have Americans moving there, not a lot, but they're trickling in. You have long-standing communities of Native peoples who are there too. And they haven't been there for generation after generation, as we always say sort of in a cliched way. They're refugees. Americans are moving there because they have the opportunity to, for cheap or free land and for expansion. But the Native communities are there because they got pushed out of their old home. They got pushed out of the Delaware River Valley. They got pushed out of Pennsylvania. They got pushed out of what is now the state of Ohio. And they have nowhere else to go. So this is a place uh, not where new, that is the Americans meets old, that is the native peoples. Uh, this is a place of newcomers, all trying to find a way to live for themselves. And it's in, in that backdrop that Tecumseh really comes of age. The way the government of the United States controlled Indiana is going to have a lot to do with the way Tecumseh's rebellion plays out and the way that the response plays out. Because it was really unique in, in American history in a lot of ways, which we'll talk about a little bit. Um, the territorial governor of Indiana uh, was a man who one day would be president. But at the time, he wasn't. Uh, his name was William Henry Harrison. William Henry Harrison uh, is a man that has a deep pedigree. William Henry Harrison's father uh, was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he was a major wheeler and dealer in Virginia. William Henry Harrison owed his lot in life to his father's political connections, and his grandfather, for that matter. I mean, this is a guy who was hooked up in Virginia's gentry. And one of his first uh, assignments, if you would, on his way to the top, uh, is to be governor of the territory of Indiana. Now, that sounds like a really choice position, but not if you've ever been to Indiana in the 19th century, um, especially the beginning. It was a rough place. It was not settled. Uh, there was one sort of major city, and I hesitate to call it that, a uh, town maybe, called Vincennes, still there. And that's kind of where William Henry Harrison, this Virginia gentryman, set up his world. He built a big mansion in Vincennes. Uh, he had a lot of aides all around him. And he was appointed over a period of time through multiple presidents. Uh, so he had sort of this, you could maybe say, bipartisan support, but he was a dead uh, letter conservative. He was a states' rights Republican in the style of Jefferson. But the thing that was unique about Harrison was that he really treated his his time in Indiana, um, and this isn't me that came up with this, but I'm going to steal it, uh, as sort of his own private medieval fiefdom. Uh, that is to say, there's very little oversight from Washington 
as to what was going on in Indiana. He really just had the mission of keeping things under control. So Harrison had the ability to basically do whatever he wanted in the territory. And that even included using some of his own thugs to murder other white men uh, that were in his way politically or that, you know, he felt the territory would be better off without. We have evidence of that. I mean, this guy, to say he abused his power um, is not an overstatement. But if you want to take the edge off of that blade, I guess you could say he liked to be in total control of the territory at all times, and he was willing to do some unorthodox things to do it. But between you and me, I mean, he was a pretty nasty character, uh, much more akin to Tony Soprano uh, than, than George Washington. So that's there. That's that story. And this is where the rest of it sort of picks up. Tecumseh is Shawnee. That's really important. Why is that important? Well, the Shawnee, if you study their history, uh, have a history of being displaced. They're one of the oldest tribal groups in North America, still are. But their history since the 1600s has been one of constant removal, displacement, and resettlement. They owe their origins to the south, maybe around the Carolinas. They move into what is today western Pennsylvania and the Ohio country. And they move beyond Indiana. Um, some call the Shawnee the Wanderers. Some call them the Southern people. Uh, but no matter what you call them, they were a people that were forced against their will to bounce around a lot. And that will instill in Tecumseh, this military leader, as we'll see, uh, this sense of duty to his people, commitment to his people, but also, again, this sense of just having had enough. He wants to restore his people to where he believes they should be, even though he's never known it in his own lifetime. And that's a powerful motivator. Now, when we look at how Tecumseh leads, this is really a two-sided coin. Because Tecumseh has a lot of innate abilities that we would think of as desirable leadership qualities. But he doesn't have all the right abilities. I mean, sometimes you need to pull a rabbit out of the hat. Some people just have this special quality about them that can maybe reach people in ways that others can't. Tecumseh is very straightforward. Uh, he has a plan. He has a mission. He has principles. He has scruples. He's a great warrior. And that will appeal to a lot of people. But it doesn't appeal to everyone. And that is where his brother will come in. So much so that many people say that the rebellion we're talking about today is equal parts Tecumseh and equal parts his brother, Tenskatawa. And this is a character you got to see to believe. Tenskatawa uh, is... In a lot of ways, uh, everything Tecumseh is not. He was born Lalawathika. And Lalawathika translates roughly to uh, one who speaks hot air. Uh, or one who produces wind. That is to say, he says a lot, but doesn't do, get a lot done. He's, he blows hot air. He's a windbag, as we would say. And you guys know what I mean. Right? He's all talk. But he has this brother Tecumseh that's very well liked, and he thinks maybe he can parlay that into some success for himself. So while Tecumseh's very good at fighting and leading men and, and building communities, Lalawathika is very good at getting drunk. 
to the point of passing out pretty regularly and missing a lot of what his brother's doing. Maybe it could have helped him. But one of these times, Lalawathika gets drunk, blacks out, and wakes up. And he says uh, to his people around him, uh, his fellow uh, fellow Shawnee, he says, I've had a vision. A vision from the master of life. This is the great native god of North America. And the master of life told Lalawathika, that the Indian can reclaim the continent if and only if they expel white people from the area. Now, this is not just about war. He says for Indian warriors to really be successful, we need to recommit ourselves to the ways of our ancestors. This is becoming a religious revival movement. But Lalawathika will say we should not dress like white men anymore. And it's pretty common to see native peoples wearing European-style clothing. He says we should not hunt with white weapons. We should not drink white alcohol. We should go back to the ways that our grandparents and great-grandparents did things and be proud Indians. And I use that word very importantly and specifically because Lalabathika was not just talking to the Shawnee. He's going to gain popularity as sort of a traveling preacher. He's talking to all the disaffected peoples of the Great Lakes and the Ohio country. And his message is resounding. So for everybody that Tecumseh can't convince to join him and fight the expansion of the United States, his brother can kind of tap into that vein of the, um, how do you want to say this, sacrosanct, if you would, uh, in, in that exists in all communities. Lalawathika the uh, the one who blows hot air, effectively, will change his name to Tenskatawa. And Tenskatawa means the open door, as if to say, freedom is at hand, come through the open door, I am the open door. And these two brothers, Tecumseh, this brilliant military tactician and leader, with a vision and a goal, uh, and Tenskatawa the open door, this religious revivalist, spiritual leader, team up to make an awesome pair. And they will amass the single biggest collection of Indian nations in terms of warriors uh, that North America had ever seen at that point. Their goal, and this is what's what's so amazing, uh, is to do something that was very attainable. Doesn't sound like it today, but at the time it was. And that was to establish a permanent Indian homeland, just for natives, um, between the Great Lakes and the Mississippi River. Um, basically, what is today Wisconsin, Indiana, Illinois, uh, and Michigan, that sort of area. The Old Northwest, or what was left of it, as they called it. And he was going to do it in very practical ways. One of the ways Tecumseh wanted to do this, and he found willing partners was with the help of the British, who still controlled all of Canada. The British effectively told Tecumseh, we will back you on this. We won't necessarily fight with you against the Americans, that's going to be on you, but we don't like the Americans either, they're cramping our style, and we would love to have the 13 colonies back. But we will give you this homeland, we'll support you financially and militarily in terms of weapons and supplies. But if you can force Americans out of Indiana, and even then maybe out of Ohio, 
then the Indian Republic will be yours. That sounds crazy, especially if you live in Indiana, Illinois, Wisconsin, Michigan. Uh, but you won't believe how close they came to actually getting this done. Uh, it would have changed the fortunes of America forever. The thing that made Tecumseh so powerful, his ability to give speeches, uh, his ability to, again, understand the bigger picture when a battle's necessary, when it wasn't, was always his, his, his ability to see beyond the big picture of things. I think it's a hallmark of all leaders. And what Tecumseh knew was he would need to build more support. He would need to gain more support. The warriors he had were great, but they weren't enough. So that's where his brother, Tenskatawa, really comes in. And you're not going to believe this story. I don't believe myself, but there were many witnesses, uh, so we'll talk about it. Tecumseh says, look to my brother. He speaks to the master of life. He will convince you to join us. Yeah, right. Uh, well, Tenskatawa tells a collection of onlookers, on this certain date, at this certain time, I will black out the sun. He promises a full-on solar eclipse. Now, could he have known the solar eclipse was coming? I tend to think probably yes. Uh, typically, historically, in human history, the average person could read the sky far more literally than we could. Uh, today, I look at the sky, I see stars, moon, sun. That's the extent of it. Uh, but whenever you were you know, planting your crops by knowing where the stars were and when the solstice was, you're going to have the average person, at least, a much better understanding of what the sky looks like. Now, we can see further today with technology, but I don't know how to use it. But there was a time when farmers and, and hunters and gatherers could have read the sky better. But Tenskatawa promises an eclipse, and people said, okay, if you can black out the sun, we'll join your rebellion. And sure enough, at the day, at the time that he promised it would happen, a full-on solar eclipse. I don't think he told his people, don't look at the eclipse. Um, like we've been told a million times over the last month, don't look at the eclipse. They all saw it. To them, it was a sign. They didn't think it was, it was a mystical energy. They believed it was a sign from the Master of Life that they should support Tenskatawa. And by extension, Tecumseh. This brings us to uh, a watershed moment. 1811. William Henry Harrison has been hearing about this brewing Indian rebellion in his territory. And this is a man who wants to climb the ladder uh, of America. He wants to be uh, president someday. And nothing will stop him faster from reaching that goal than having some massive Indian rebellion get out of control and see the establishment of a British-backed Indian Republic. So William Henry Harrison is determined to squash Tecumseh and Tenskatawa's rebellion in 1811. And he knows where to do that. As the prophet Tenskatawa has been gathering more steam and more followers, um, he's actually sort of created a town, something out of nothing really, of a few thousand people, uh, known as Prophet's Town. It was really a tent city, uh, but William Henry Harrison knew where it was, he knew what was going on there, and he knew if you were going to strike, that's the place to do it. Now, when William Henry Harrison decides to lead this attack, and he'll take frontiersmen and soldiers with him to do it. 
He does it at a fortuitous time. He does it when Tecumseh, this great military genius and leader of men, is not in the town. Tecumseh is actually south in what is today the American, uh, American southern states, trying to recruit warriors from different tribes to come and fight. And he tells his brother very specifically, if any Americans attack you, do whatever you can to stop them. Don't let them do it. Don't lead them into battle. You know, Tecumseh is the military guy, and Tenskatawa's sort of the magical eclipse guy, but he's not the lead-you-into-battle guy, as we'll see. William Henry Harrison will march his men toward Prophetstown. The warrior scouts will see him, and they'll go to the only leadership they have in the village, Tenskatawa, the open door. And they'll say to him, what do we do? Tecumseh told us not to fight unless we had to. They're on their way here. And this is when Tenskatawa really comes into his own. He tells them, even though my brother told us not to fight, I think, I think, we should. And just to convince you otherwise, because a lot of people weren't sold on taking military direction from Tenskatawa, he told them, I'll put a magic spell on you so that bullets will not be able to penetrate your skin. Uh, that's really something. This is a guy that blacked out the sun. And now he's made you bulletproof with that same magic. So, of course, the warriors are all gung-ho. They put their faith in Tenskatawa. They charge the camp of William Henry Harrison. A massive battle goes down. It's the Battle of Tippecanoe. That's what it's known as. And it's a rout. As it turns out, the Americans' bullets can penetrate the skin of the Indian warriors uh, and kill them. And a lot of them, by the time they figure this out, realize they've made a terrible mistake. They scatter, they abandon Prophetstown, and Tenskatawa is sort of considered to be a terrible fraud, after all. The eclipse was nice, but bulletproof, clearly not. Now, in 1811, when Prophetstown's abandoned, Tippecanoe is over, William Henry Harrison has just made his name in history. Because I bet all of you have heard of Tippecanoe before, even if you didn't know exactly the battle itself. Uh, and the American militiamen and soldiers went into what was left of Prophetstown when the warriors all scattered. And they found a lot of guns and a lot of uh, musket balls and a lot of gunpowder. And all of them, interestingly enough, were marked that they came from Great Britain. So, on the frontier, you've got many people killed in Indian raids. They need somebody to be angry at. And they found it. The British in Canada had been illegally supplying uh, what the Americans view as rebels, effectively, Tecumseh's rebels, with weapons used to kill them. Uh, so they have their enemy. They have their out. And when Tecumseh comes back, he sees everything he's built has been destroyed. And he's angry about it. He's angry at his brother for not listening to him. Uh, when he told him not to fight. He's angry at the warriors for abandoning the cause. Uh, but really, he's angry at the United States. Because to him, this is just another example of the Shawnee being obliterated, getting the short end of the stick, so to speak, uh, and losing their, their world, losing their homeland. Uh, he views it as a continuous cycle. So Tecumseh will never give up. Tenskatawa kind of gives up. He goes up into Canada and hides out for a while. 
He'll eventually come back, but he dies in 1828. The next year, however, war is reignited with Great Britain. The War of 1812. And it will go on through 1813 and 1814. And in that war, Tecumseh will find a new charge. He's still angry at the United States. He still has the support of enough warriors that he can be relevant. And he still has this dream, however much it's slipping, of an Indian Republic in the Northwest. He tells the British, I'll fight with you if you win. Will you give us this land? And the British will say, yes, we will. Uh, And the War of 1812 is underway. Most of the time, the British will fight in the East. For some examples, they'll capture Washington, D.C. They'll burn it to the ground, including the White House. They'll almost capture Maryland. Uh, And, of course, you see Fort McHenry reign supreme. The Star-Spangled Banner is written about the defense of Fort McHenry. The British were close. But in the West, the War of 1812 is an Indian war. And it's a brutal war. And it's led by Tecumseh. Tecumseh's greatest military achievement... And this is why I'm so impressed by him. Maybe a time when he didn't even need to fire a shot. Whenever he captured the single biggest fort in the West at the time, held by Americans and then taken over, it was Fort Detroit. Now, there's nothing left of Fort Detroit, but if I'm ever in Detroit, I always like to imagine what was going on there at the time, because it's a fort that had been there since the time of the French. Um... So at that time, 60 years old at that point. Uh, But what Tecumseh does is actually pretty brilliant. He knows there's a lot of Americans in Fort Detroit. Um, He also knows that he doesn't have that many warriors. So what Tecumseh does is he marches out of the trees, sort of in a parade formation, meant to intimidate the Americans in Fort Detroit. And then as his men march out of the trees, they also sort of make a semicircle and march back into the trees. And they do that in a rotating circle. So literally, like, the same, you know, 50 or 60 guys just keep popping out of the woods, going back in, and then coming back out again. And the American commander inside of Fort Detroit actually believes he's seeing, like, an endless line of warriors. There must be thousands of them. No, it's the same 60 guys just marching in a circle, but he can't see it, and he surrenders the fort, no contest. You cannot make that up. Like Tecumseh, no wonder he was so confident he could beat the the United States. I mean, he took the biggest fort in the West without a shot being fired. Uh, When he takes Fort Detroit, things are looking grim for the Americans. Uh, That will change whenever the Americans do take back control of the Great Lakes through a major naval military victory led by a man named Oliver Hazard Perry. And who returns but William Henry Harrison, old Tippecanoe, to reclaim... Uh, Fort Detroit from Tecumseh. At this point, Harrison is viewed as the leader of the American frontier. And he will reclaim Fort Detroit. He'll reclaim Fort Michilimackinac in Michigan today. And he'll chase Tecumseh and his warriors into Canada. There'll be a major battle called the Battle of the Thames. uh, And William Henry Harrison will once and for all finish off his nemesis, Tecumseh, uh, and kill him in the Battle of the Thames. So, with that, William Henry Harrison will rise. And Tecumseh will fall. But so will his dream of an Indian Republic in North America. We talk about a lot of rebellions in this season. Some more serious than others. Um... 
But this one was just impressive in its size and its scale. It was impressive in its goals because they were attainable and they were done in a pretty politically astute way. I mean, to rally the British to your side in support was a pretty good idea. And no one had really done it the way that Tecumseh had. And it ultimately cost him his life, but he does fight all the way to the end. And for that reason, Tecumseh remains um, sort of this beacon of, of freedom that Americans have latched on to, even though they were the ones most responsible for his demise. Uh, it's really an amazing story, and he, again, really is an incredible leader um, that's worth mentioning in a season like this. So, <clears throat> moving forward, what happens to the Native peoples, what happens to the Indian peoples of the frontier and their many communities, they never really recover after Tenskatawa. Um, after Tecumseh dies. In my book, Gaia Sutta and the Fall of Indian America, uh, you can get on Amazon or in bookstores, uh, I wrote about a man named Gaia Sutta who began fighting for Native Indian rights uh, in 1753 and really did so all the way through the 1790s in what, for Europeans, was many different wars, the Seven Years' War, uh, Pontiac's Rebellion, the American Revolution, and the Northwest Indian War, but to the people fighting it, it was one long war. Uh, Tecumseh is really the one who picks up the torch in the 1790s when that first or second generation of warriors uh, becomes too old to continue. He's the one that takes the dream of an Indian republic free uh, from oppression into the 19th century. And it's a loss for him. But it's an important one uh, because it has larger political ramifications. But I do believe um, it was one of the closest to actually happening in terms of it being a realistic possibility. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.